0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is philosopher Greg Sadler. Dr. Sadler teaches philosophy and humanities at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, as well as philosophy and business ethics at Marquette University. Editor at Stoicism Today the president of Reason.io, and a certified philosophical counselor. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
1: So, so yeah, I never, I never thought I would be an academic because I never thought I would actually go to college. Um, I went in the Army when I was... 18 and I, I ended up getting out in the budget cuts of 1990 after the the wall came down and the Soviet Union was starting to collapse and, and we had what was called peace dividend um, and then I started you know, I was working in restaurants and and I decided that that wasn't uh, as much fun as I'd, I'd like so then I, I thought I'd go to college and I'd, I'd read a little bit of philosophy here and there <clears throat> so I knew that philosophy was something interesting, and when I got to college, my my mom's boyfriend told me, declare a major immediately, because then then you're not just, you know, one freshman in a whole crowd, so I looked down the list, and I I saw philosophy, and I said, well, that sounds cool, so I'll I'll do that, and I just started taking classes, and the place that I went to, uh, the professors were really out of date. Uh, They thought that analytics philosophy was you know kind of a fad that that was gonna die out sooner or later and existentialism was the big thing and they were also interested in process philosophy of all things and that's that's like the whole field as far as they were concerned and so they they you know sort of like left me to my own devices and I did a lot of reading on my own and encountered other people so I fortunately got introduced to some some more uh, contemporary stuff and, and I started you know, uh, thinking about graduate school, but then then I took a year off as well in between undergraduate and graduate, and just worked and uh, worked as a security guard actually, a third shift. So I got to read a lot and work on my languages. And then um, I had no idea how the the you know the job system works or that it's important to go to a top tier school or anything like that because you know my professors didn't know anything and nobody in my family. Uh, went on to graduate school most of them are in the trades <clears throat> so I, um, I I you know I, I went to Southern Illinois University because they had the, the best um, scholarship for me and you know it was it was a, a nice place to live uh, down in, in in the south and you um, they had a great research library and I didn't realize how good their, their library was at the time. And, and, uh, so I just, you know, stuck around there and, and at that time, you know, there, there was still this assumption that I think is going away today that if you're going to go and do a PhD, you'd better prepare for the teaching track rather than planning on doing anything else. Um, so that's, that's what I did. I graduated and we moved on to my family's land with uh, the inheritance that I had from my, my mother's death. And um, then I just started looking, you know, I sent out letters to schools in the nearby areas and I, I got a job teaching in a maximum security prison, teaching philosophy and religious studies. And I stayed there until uh, Indiana phased out their prison education program for college students. And, you know, so my, my, my history uh, as an academic has, has essentially just been like wandering into one thing into another thing without a lot of careful planning or anything like that, not knowing the rules of the game until it was already too late and um, finding out that, that a lot of uh, stuff in academia really depends on prestige rather than on, on any yeah uh, more i well, mean less arbitrary factors um and then the last almost 10 years really since 2011 i've been only teaching part time as an adjunct which is very eye opening as well and um doing doing other things with with philosophy so you know the philosophical counseling came in doing tutorials consulting work um the youtube videos um what else? You know, creating my own online classes. Essentially, you know, having to shift into an entrepreneurial mindset without without buying into all the sort of like life productivity, you know, stuff that that the entrepreneurs seem to really gravitate towards. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I, I split my time now between teaching for for academic institutions and doing all sorts of other things that are um, much more public impact than than teaching us.
0: No, I love it. Like I said, I've been listening to your YouTube videos, um, and now I found you have a SoundCloud, you're everywhere. And um, they're really helpful because, like, I I have a PsyD, so it's a doctorate in psychology, but Mm -hmm. most psychologists even have, like, a PhD in psychology, so they get more of the theory, And, of course, in psychoanalysis, there's a lot of um, psychoanalysts that study philosophy and a lot of philosophers that study psychoanalysis. There's a lot of crossover. But I never formally studied uh, philosophy. I've just kind of, like, put it together piecemeal in, like, study groups and different things that I've read, but no one's actually ever, like, taught it to me. So I've been loving your videos because it's kind of helping fit all the pieces together and, like, fill in the holes in my learning that I had.
1: You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of programs in um, where there's overlap between like you know, psychology and philosophy uh, or psychoanalysis, and they tend to um, they tend to teach the like cutting edge, high theory stuff, and they'll have all sorts of allusions to you know, oh, this is what Aristotle said, or here's you know, here's what was going on in Descartes, and then they don't actually. Teach well. What did Descartes actually think? There's no like foundational work, and and because of uh, the kinds of classes that I, I've taught over the course of my career, which are mostly what we call service classes, you know, for undergraduates who who don't want to major in philosophy, probably never had a, a philosophy class. Um, that's that's the kind of content that I'm I'm usually producing is that that foundational stuff. Some viewers complain, and they're like, well, why aren't you engaging in critique of Descartes when you're presenting him and I and I'm like well, it's good enough to just like actually get the Descartes right Critique can happen later first. We have to actually know what he's what he's saying Yeah, exactly Um, because
0: I I feel like I've read all these analysts critiquing these philosophers But I never actually like learned exactly what the philosophers themselves said
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's a very common experience Um, I've known a lot of people in, in a lot of different programs in literature, too, where where it overlaps with philosophy, where, you know, you've come into the class, and it's a really big-name teacher, and they're going to tell you all about this, this new thing that they, they've got going, and, um, you know, you, they, they they don't go through, I mean, you don't know whether they're getting Descartes right, or Hobbes right, or whoever, until you go back to it and, and read it yourself.
0: And I find that happens a lot of times with Freud. like. Freud is referenced <laughs> everywhere, you know. Yeah, yeah, And then if you actually go back and read Freud, you're like, that's not at all what he was saying, you know. So it's like, um, it's really helpful well, to actually just at least read it yourself and make your own opinions instead of just reading anybody yeah, else's opinion about it.
1: That's absolutely central. That that really ought to be a part of anybody's, whether they're like a student. That that should be part of a student's experience. But it's also part of like ongoing professional development for us as well, because we we've always inherited these um, judgments about what somebody was saying or the quality of what they were saying or, or what its implications are, and and we don't we don't actually know until we go back to it, and we, we have to be kind of selective because you can't read everybody. But you know it's funny with the Freud thing, you know, um, it didn't take long for that to be the case, right? Because Lacan, one of his main shticks is telling uh, the psychoanalytic establishment of his time that they're not actually reading Freud carefully and that Freud is actually saying this or this or this. You know? So that was only, what, like... Uh,
0: Fifty years 40, later. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. even. <laughs> so,
1: so it didn't take too long for for that sort of thing to happen.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've actually, it's like, it's psychoanalytic training in New York... Um, I actually had people like not teach Freud at all. And they were like, oh, he's irrelevant now. And I'm just like, well, if we're going to be psychoanalysts, probably we should read Freud. You know, <laughs> at least see what he was talking about when he started this whole thing. You know,
1: yeah, and it, it's interesting, too. There's there's a sort of like a wider dismissal of him in, in uh, psychology as a whole. especially in psychotherapy and people are like oh the cognitive revolution nobody ever has to read freud again he's just you know uh full of all sorts of mythology and nonsense and okay there's some there's some things where you're like okay probably the oedipus complex you know that we might want to you know rethink Lacan himself said that that's just a western thing um, you know it's it's a, it's, it's essentially a, a symbolic myth- mythology that maybe we get past eventually. Um, but that doesn't mean that you throw everything out you know the, the notion of there being unconscious desires that seems to be pretty pretty uh, relevant today <laughs> you know? even and, and, and you know you know, I suppose you could get it from people other than Freud, but why not also get it from Freud mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I've been reading, um, Freud and Einstein had like a correspondence, and I feel like that kind of period is very relevant for what's happening now. But um, it was interesting to me, too, what you said uh, in the beginning with your school and how like specific your professors were, you know, because I'm finding, I, you know, you don't think about it when you're in school or at that level or looking yeah. for places so much, at least for me. I'm I'm from Miami, like I said, and I just went to the schools in my area, you know, I went to Florida right, International too, yeah. University and then a, a graduate school uh, nearby, and I didn't really know there were such huge differences, like in psychology, between analytic places and places that are CBT, I didn't, you know, I was... Yeah. 22, you know, how, what do I know? You know, I didn't know about that. Um, so it's really interesting how skewed your kind of te- your education can be based on whoever's there. You know?
1: Yeah, and it's I think it's perfectly reasonable that people would, looking at the department that they're in, assume that other departments are going to be like that. Um, but yeah, that's 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 such a uh, um, it's often so arbitrary what's considered important. Uh, both in psychology and in philosophy, and in literature, and in all, all you know, all across the humanities. Um, I mean, if you're doing philosophy in the United States and you were to go to any random department other than small four-year liberal arts schools where it tends to be more history of philosophy because uh, they have to be generalists, you'd assume that analytic philosophy is the you know the only game in town, and that uh, you you really need to read these these few articles. And don't bother reading stuff in the history of, of ideas, um, but then if you go somewhere else, you know, you, you get introduced to, to other approaches to it, and they could be good, They or they could be quite narrow as well, so, Yeah.
0: Yeah, it really depends on your region and your professors. And, like, the reason I got into psychoanalytic training is because I thought when I went to graduate school for psychology, I was going to read Freud, and there was no Freud. (laughs) (laughs) So I found, like, one professor at the school that was a New York analyst that, like, retired in Florida, and I kind of, like, latched onto him, you know.
1: (laughs) That really happens a lot in philosophy, too, where people are coming in and they, they think, well somewhere along the line, we should read some Aristotle. And they, they never encounter him. They're like, well, where is he, you know? Um, or, or any of the other people who are, who are famous. Especially, I, I imagine, for the young people coming in right now where they have this, this, you know, continual exposure to the Internet. So if you just type in the word philosophy, all sorts of things will pop up. Um, but what's, what's out there in the world of, of let's call it the, the philosophy on the Internet, Um, is going to be quite different from the the, uh, uh, academic departments that they're they're going into in many cases, even if there's some overlap. Um, So I imagine sometimes they would get kind of disappointed that they're not getting to read the people that they thought might be interesting. I mean, my remedy for that was, well, just don't read what your professors, don't only read what your professors tell you to read, read whatever the hell you want to. You know, but I'm always surprised a lot of people don't do that. They they take their guidance from whatever the curriculum is and they don't feel themselves, I guess you could say, empowered to to read whatever they want to on their own. Like they think that they're going to get in trouble or um, they're going to screw up their development in some way if they if they read somebody else.
0: Right. God forbid there's, like, other thought int- interjected in.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, where do you think that comes from, this this, this worry or concern or fear?
0: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I know for me, in graduate school, I feel like I read everything I wanted before and then since graduate school. But I feel like graduate school was so busy just with, like, so many ridiculous amounts of assignments that I never got to really Mm. even really read the stuff that I was assigned. I was also working like waitressing full time at night, but I felt like I was just, I felt like graduate school was just like going through the motions, handing in assignments and just like getting them (laughs) done as quickly as possible. I feel like I didn't really learn, uh, like I wasn't learning what I wanted and I don't feel like I learned it uh, what they wanted me to learn very well. I basically learned like this is not what I want to do, but I'm already halfway through this degree in this school, so I can't just mm-hmm. leave now because that'll be like a waste of a lot of money. So I might as well, like finish this degree and then figure out what I'm going to do from <laughs> yeah, right yeah. here.
1: I you know I have had the experience of going back and reading rereading texts and thinkers that I, I read during undergraduate or graduate school. And realizing that I thought I really understood them well at the time, um, but then I'd, I'd missed a lot of stuff, and some of it I think had to do with with um, aging and, and not being in that student professor sort of situation, um, but some of it was just I I wasn't a very careful reader, you know, myself. So I think I got excited about some things and then and then uh, missed. In, you know, entire other things at the same time, which might be, that might be a normal thing for graduate students.
0: Yeah, I think so. Especially if you are reading four specific assignments, you might just be only picking up kind of what you need to use for whatever you're writing and you might be missing other aspects of the work.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I was kind of fortunate in that most of our classes did have like, you know, final paper. That was your, your big thing. But they, the professors were pretty. Um, what would be the word? They were they were open about what you wanted to write about, you know, and how you wanted to to work on it. They 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 want you to tell them what the idea was, so they could point you towards certain secondary sources or important texts. But they, at least in my experience, maybe they, they were more hands on with some of the other grad students. But they they kind of let me do whatever the hell I wanted to, um, so long as I produced. <laughs> So,
0: What was it like working in the prison?
1: Well, um, I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was tough physically because you would have to shout over fans and air conditioners and things like that. And the chalkboards would be kind of crumbling, so I'd actually bring in the street chalk to uh, do, like, logics, so, you know, anything that had a lot of uh, stuff on the chalkboard, sometimes even right on the walls, on the cinder blocks. Um, so the students could could see it. And you know the students had a really hard time. Um, th- you could never count on actually getting the full time for class because there could be some weird you know issue with like somebody being missing, and then everybody's got to go go back to their cells. Um, they They didn't have access to the internet, obviously. Um, this was maximum security so and, any sort of research materials we'd have to all bring in and, and have photocopied and you know the, the books that we had were usually kind of out of date because they all came from one big storeroom at, at Ball State and we'd get to wander around and pick the books that we, we wanted to use for classes but that, those were the only books we, we had um, so it was, it was challenging and the, the students were good they were, you know, quite motivated. Um, they would receive this um, uh, eight-semester grant from the state of Indiana for low-income students, and if they screwed up, they, they knew they'd lose that semester, and since they made so little money at their jobs, um, they knew that if they if they didn't, like, you know, stay on track, um, they, they wouldn't finish their degree, most likely. So they, you know, they they would come in originally to have something to do or get a time cut because they they get a small uh, bit of their sentence shaved off for for completing an associates or a bachelors. But then usually by a couple semesters in they were they were really interested in the subject matters, and they weren't allowed to major in anything but they could get minors, and so some did, I, I taught philosophy and religious studies, so some, some did philosophy minors, and some did philo- or religious studies minors, and I had one guy who actually took, because uh, I, I had to teach the entire curriculum, he took, I think, um, something like 12 classes with me over the course of his his time. Um, I think he had the record, and so, you know, it was uh, it, it was a good experience for me, and it was a good experience for them, but it was, it, was, uh, it was, you know, a lot of trying circumstances. And, and it, you, you'd have these cases where a guy would, um, something would happen to him or he'd get in trouble and then he'd, he'd be gone for a while. And um, you knew that it was sort of tragic. It would like take him off course. Like there was a guy who I'd had in a lot of my classes and he was really smart and had a stroke. He was in his, his late 60s. He was very... Um, uh, detail-oriented, and he and I would, would clash sometimes over. The, he, he didn't like the, there being multiple interpretations of things, and I, I would stress to him that there, there usually were. And then we, you know, we got into a good rapport. And it was his very last semester, and um, a guy he had borrowed money from him, and the guy wasn't paying him back so he felt that he needed to attack him because if he didn't he'd be seen as weak and then preyed upon by the other prisoners so he, he put a lock in a sock and, and you know beat the guy senseless and then of course got in got in trouble got taken out of school got put in in, in lockup and um, while he was there his brother died and he he would have gotten out um, in time to go to his brother's funeral because he was so close to the to, to the end, but it, but he had to you know engage in this act of violence to to essentially maintain his own status and safety, and it meant that he couldn't get out to go to his his brother's funeral, and so there there are a lot of things like that you know people had children who um, sometimes died or uh, other bad things happened to while they were stuck. In, in the prison. Um lot of lot of tough stories. Few few of my students, uh not while I was teaching them, of course, but but at other points um got hurt or died as well. And I was always sad to hear about that. Um, this- so there was a lot of yeah a lot of a lot of that that sort of thing going on.
0: And it's really unfortunate they don't have that kind of educational program anymore.
1: Yeah, and that was the state of Indiana that decided that. Um, first, they phased out the liberal arts, and they switched to, the idea was that um, having them no longer do four-year liberal arts degrees and having them do two-year business and information technology degrees would make them more employable, which totally went against all the you know data that was out there, but it was an easy sell to the legislature. And then they phased out that grant that they were getting, so um, they made the prisoners ineligible for it, but they they allowed the general population to be eligible, and it was always a hard sell. You know, even people outside of Indiana, because Indiana used to be one of the nation's leader in prison education. They had the largest number of uh, prison professors. There were ten uh, institutions across the state that were participating in it. Um, so all of that just essentially went went down the toilet because the legislature. Uh, bowed to political pressure and, and decided that they wanted to uh, uh, use the tax money elsewhere. And it, it's too bad because you know, prison education radically cuts recidivism when, when it's done right. You know, Four-year liberal arts degrees, great for that. Um, giving them an IT degree, uh, you don't see that much moral transformation with, with that, but
0: yeah, and, like, it's, like, that's the, the thing that's so frustrating with schools in general of, like, focusing on, like, what, what's going to get you a job when you get out instead of teaching people how to think and, like, appreciate life and think about life and decide what they want to do with their life, you know?
1: Yeah, and, it, and, and if, if you're dealing with prison students in particular and you're thinking about moral reformation, you know, taking, taking a person who um, has committed serious crimes... And didn't just you know one day wake up and decide to kill somebody or you know kidnap them or commit a rape or something like that, but who who you know generally had a lot of trauma in their in their life, but also made some pretty bad decisions and generally have some some habits that they need to work on. Um, mere vocational training isn't going to do anything for that. It, it requires um, say reading Sophocles and thinking about. Um, you know, who's screwed up and who's less screwed up and and how to make, you know, a a bad situation a little bit better and and having to argue with other people about it. You know, it's interesting, Kohlberg, um, you know, with his his stages of of moral development, which, you know, we can buy into to some degree and then then reject in other parts, he did a lot of his early research in prisons. And um, he, he concluded that the prison as an institution tended to, like, Channel people into level one and level two thinking, including the guards. Uh, and, and he was he was trying to, you know, find ways to restructure that uh, while he was work- working in prison, so that it would it would promote higher level moral development.
0: That's um, so interesting.
1: Which, yeah, yeah. I mean, which which he said has, and I think he's right about this. Has to happen through, through engagement and dialogue and conflict. You know, you, you have to have somebody else push back and say. No, I think you're wrong, and then have to defend you know what you think is right, and maybe maybe it turns out you are wrong. Um, you have to have something like that, according to him, in order to to make it through these these stages.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I found that coming to Sweden from America, you know, even speaking to psychoanalysts and philosophers here, you know, what I've learned and what I've been talking about and teaching there. I come here and I'm kinda of talking about the same thing and it's like, you know, it's a different place. <laughs> oh yeah. It, I mean different. they have
1: a very very different understanding of rehabilitation than 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 we do here in the States, you know. Absolutely. And think about like uh so you I mean you were living in New York. If you get arrested in New York, odds are you're going to Rikers. And Rikers is just this horrible place, you know, where, where I mean, just, just the way it's set up to begin with, it's, it's terribly unhealthy, and then, you know, you're liable to be assaulted in there. People get lost and left in there for months at a time. You know, the, the Scandinavians realized that uh, those sorts of things, which they'd done in the past, you know, prisons weren't, weren't great, say, in the 1700s. It was it was totally counterproductive, and we're still caught in this this sort of like, well, you committed a crime, so let's throw you away, um, you piece of crap kind of mentality here, not not seeing um, inmates as um, human beings, and it's it's really unfortunate. So, yeah, it's
0: tragic, and let's make a lot of money off of you while we do it.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true too. Yeah. Yeah, here in Wisconsin, um we built a lot of prisons starting in the 1990s and through the 2000s. So there's a huge investment in getting something out of the the prisons and prisoners, you know.
0: And how did you get into making your YouTube channel? Like where did this idea come from?
1: So that actually came from my wife, who at that time was my fiance, and um, she bought me a Flipcam. Back then, there was actually a company called Flip, right? And, and they had these little handheld cameras, and um, she bought it for me originally so I could document uh, a trip that I was taking, <clears throat> and then she she suggested that I should um, record my videos. My, my very last semester at Fayetteville State University, I was teaching this critical thinking class, and... She was always you know, a, sort of an early adopter of technology and into you know, innovative pedagogical strategies. And, and I'd been video recorded before. Um, they had a program where they, they had these guys come in with like big bulky cameras in the back of the classroom and video record you. So I was okay with that. And she said, you should, you should try that. And I said, well, how, how would we do that? So I actually have the, the kind of tripod that, because it's in my desk, a little tiny tripod that you could buy at like uh, Staples for ten bucks. So I put the camera on that, and then just plunk it down on a desk and record it. And, and back then, YouTube was kind of in its infancy. So individual users at first, you could only upload like ten minutes at a time. And then it was fifteen minutes, then twenty minutes, and then finally they like opened the doors. But at that time, I could only record fifteen. I could only upload fifteen minutes at a time. So I would give it to one of the tech people who would load it into um, Fayetteville State's institutional channel. And they cause the classes were about 50 minutes long. So then those go in there and and I was really surprised um, that I was using them for my students, but people all over the world were like, you know, commenting and saying, Oh, this is really helpful. And they, they said a lot of so so the, the comments were things like um, they were from people in in school who were saying, my instructor won't go over the material, um, they don't explain anything, this help, help save my grade and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, that, that kind of sucks. And there were a lot of those comments. You know? <laughs> so there's a lot of bad teachers out there. And then there were others that were from people who weren't in college or, or you know um, never got to go to college. And they would say, oh, this is really nice. Uh, feels like I'm in the classroom, and I get to learn from from you. Um, thanks for for posting that. Or they would say I, I had to drop out of college, or I you know, finished college years ago, and I like watching these videos for that. So that made me realize that there was, you know, a significant audience out there, and it was you know from all over the world, um, mostly you know more English speakers than than than. Uh, other places, but you know, Brazil, Poland, uh, Indonesia, people were weighing in from there. So then I left Fayetteville State University and moved up to New York to be with my fiance, and I started teaching part-time. And at Marist, um, they, when it came to intellectual property, they were like, well, anything to do is yours, you know, You, you can do whatever you like with it. And so I was like, okay, that can I record videos in class? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. And, and I got a FERPA release um, you know, for the privacy stuff So because my students would sometimes like, walk in front of the camera, <laughs> or, you know, their voices are on the, the things. And I'd have them sign that, and then I would record the videos, and then it was a resource. So like if they missed class because they were a student athlete or they're sick, they could, they could watch it. And a lot of the other students who weren't missing class, they would go back to the videos too and watch them for parts that they didn't fully understand. So it had a really good pedagogical um, uh, set of purposes and outcomes, and then because I was no longer just doing critical thinking and argumentation, but talking about classic philosophical texts, like you know, start with Plato and then go into Aristotle and the Stoics. Um, people were really getting into it, and the comments were you know those sorts of things, and then there were also comments that were like, hey, why don't you do videos on on this person, or do videos on that person, or do videos on on this other person, and so I did a poll, and my viewers were most interested in Sartre, Heidegger, Hegel, and of all people, Marcuse. So I started doing, then I started doing videos outside of class, just like I'd go into a classroom that was empty and put the thing down and start recording and doing things about existentialist thinkers, or about, and then I started the Half Hour Hegel series, and it it just sort of you know kept going on and on. And my, my channel's never been like, taking off like gangbusters the way um some of the more glitzy you know high production short low content stuff like school of life or philosophy tube or stuff like that they have have way more subscribers um but they don't they don't go into depth about things so there's kind of a niche for people who want to understand what did Plato actually say, or you know, what, is, what is Descartes actually saying in this part of the meditations? And that's, that's what I feel. And part of it is because when I'm presenting the stuff, I, you know, I present it sympathetically, even with people I totally disagree with, because it's important that we, we understand their perspectives before we start you know, laying into them and saying why they're so totally wrong and terrible people and all of that sort of stuff. So I've just been, you know, churning away at it, and um, I'll probably keep doing it. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to YouTube down the line, you know. Um,
0: Make sure I guess, you have them all on a hard drive somewhere.
1: I do. I, I, I've got, I've got that. But uh, you know, if we think about like what technology is going to be like, I don't, twenty, thirty years from now, are we still going to be watching videos, you know, on like mobile devices or? Will it be holograms or, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe everything that we're doing will turn out to be uh, a medium that loses traction and and only historians know about. Sort of like the VHS
0: or something, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) cassette Um, tapes. Though there are people who still collect those.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of record vinyl people. having grown up in in, you know the 70s and 80s cassette tapes sucked (laughs) you know they're always breaking the sound quality would 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 degrade the more times you played it um they were more convenient but they you know the convenience factor is totally gone now that we have mp3s so i don't see any upside to cassette tapes
0: um (laughs) No, I think some small indie labels use them just because it's so inexpensive to make them. They're like, you can make them for like 40 cents a piece or something, as but opposed who to a record. Them? is like You have to find an old Walkman yeah. or something
2: like that, you know?
0: It has to be someone who's like definitely over 40 <laughs> Maybe still has their stereo with their cassette player in their house, like, like.
1: Saying, oh yeah, you know? yeah, that's right. Often, <laughs> oftentimes they'd have them built in, or if you have a boombox, right? Yeah. Uh, that would that would work. <laughs> I used to when I was in high school, I was kind of a a burnout, and uh, I would carry this boombox around with me, and uh, then I would stick it in my my locker, and, and that was part of my my identity at the time, you know. Um, <laughs> so... And he'd like paint yeah. band names on it and all that sort of nonsense. Same band names that would like scribble on the table. You
0: know? It was fun. Good times.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: It is different though thinking about like people growing up pre-internet and people growing up now that the, that it's been like this their whole lives.
1: You know something else that uh, was an interesting experience from you know roughly the last ten years was when I got onto Facebook, and I, I suppose you could have this with other uh, social media platforms, but Facebook was really the one that this happened to with me. Um, one of the experiences that that I could have that like my kids can never have is um, reconnecting with people that you've totally lost touch with and have no idea what they did with their life, and then you know, finding out like, well, oh, this is what they did, and here's who they've become. They've grown up with all of these, these social networks, and they'll probably, you know, they, they'll maintain contact with people after high school um, in ways that we, we didn't, because we just didn't have the possibility. And it was kind of cool getting to, you know, you, you've forgotten about these people, so enough time has passed and there's enough of a separation that you're ready to um, find out, you know, like who, who they've turned into when you're, when you're in your 40s getting on Facebook. And, you know, the current generations, that's, that's just not going to be the case. They'll always be in touch. All, they'll always be to some degree held back by who they were in a previous time, you know, in relation to these people.
0: Right. And there's no, like, everything's recorded, too. So there's no, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> reinventing yourself or, like, pretending that night didn't happen. Cause it's like, it's yeah. online somewhere that night, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. You know, well, the whole cancel culture thing, you know, this reaching back years and years and years ago to find some something bad that somebody said or did, right? Um, I mean... As screwed up as we were in in the 80s, you know. I mean, I when I was in high school, I um, I actually wrote a paper for a, a American history class. we we're, we're all told that we, you know, he gave us this this spectrum. Okay, here's like conservatives and liberals, and then further right are reactionaries, and further left are, are radicals. And where do you fit in on the spectrum? And, you know, it was the 80s, so most of the girls in the class were like, well, I'm a liberal because of this and that. And then the boys were, I'm a conservative because of this and that. And I wrote a paper where, you know, I'd been reading a lot of uh, history and political theory, and I was like, well, you know, I think fascism is actually the way to go. Um, and I draw my my ideas from, you know, Napoleon and Mussolini, and also from some somewhat from Stalin, the stuff that works. And, you know, the, the, the teacher had me get up and read this in class. And Obviously, I don't, I don't you know, I don't buy this now, but, uh, you know, 16-year-old Greg did. And I had some, you know, some well-reasoned things, and I had, you know, it wasn't it was a, it was a sort of fascism that was all about the nation but not about race or anything like that, but very militaristic. We should, like, take over most of the parts of the world and thereby bring world peace. So the, the teacher had me get up in class and read this. And then, of course, like, you know, people's jaws dropped, and, and you know, then it, they were being invited to, uh, critique it and, and some of the people were very angry about it and that's that's exactly what the teacher wanted so now imagine if that was available online right now i'd be screwed <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it wouldn't matter what had changed in my life uh over these 30 years 30, 36 46 uh, 30 30 34 40 years Um, and so there, there's so many, yeah, there's so many kids that everything that they say and do is now being preserved in in some archive somewhere and they don't really get the opportunity to, to, uh, screw up in, uh, ways that won't come back to haunt them later. I mean, the ones that do are the, are the ones who have privilege anyway, the, the kids who are rich and can have things scrubbed. And, but if you're, if you're a regular person, it's pretty tough in that respect you know? yeah, and
0: there's also reason why like our mind represses things and we don't remember everything. So, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. it's useful not to.
1: <laughs> I mean, in Europe, they do they, you know they have that right to be forgotten by by Google at least, to not be in search results, which is kind of cool. But it's not truly a right to be like totally forgotten, right? it It really only has to do with uh, whether people can find you or not. Doesn't scrub all the data that you might want destroyed.
0: No, that's worth too much money. <laughs> <Again>. Yeah,
1: <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, and there's that's an interesting dividing thing too. Americans, it's not as if we're comfortable with our data being monetized and being stored away, but there's no there's no concerted political uh, movement in the mainstream to to rein in the the huge internet uh, and technology giants whereas in europe it, it seems clear that there is you know
0: yeah there's finally
1: yeah they're more rational about that in a way you could say
0: yeah because it um, is quite disturbing how like so few companies are the like, gatekeepers to like all the information because like last year when i was like moving from from there to here we like traveled a lot during that year because okay. we, we had free time to do that and it's yeah. like you know egypt thailand wherever you go everybody still has the same kind of phones and everyone's yeah, doing true. the same kind of like memes like everyone knows this like dance thing that i don't know what it's called flossing or whatever it's like it's like everywhere and all the people know all the same kind of references but like all the people shouldn't know all the same kind of references. There needs to be different kinds of people,
1: <laughs> yeah, you could call it a globalization of information rather than simply of uh, commodities.' Um, I'd say that's quite interesting. yeah it's, it's probably weird. going to yeah, it's probably going to accelerate too for you know further generations um, i mean i don't I don't see the big technology companies. Going away or being, you know, broken up the way that they did in the '80s with, you know, AT&T and all these other phone companies. It, it just doesn't seem seem likely or feasible that they'd ever break up Google or Apple or Microsoft or, or Facebook or Amazon. You know, the big five that that, that all have these incredibly imperialistic uh, uh, tendencies and and and. Uh, express desires, you know. It's interesting, too. I, it's, I've been watching these companies for a long time. They they all want to do everything. They all want to penetrate into every aspect of, of human life. And, you know, for a for good purpose, they're going to make our lives better, That <laughs> all that sort of, sort of ideology. And they, they spar with each other. So I remember, this was a couple of years back, Facebook came out with some platform that was going to be a LinkedIn killer. And, of course, it didn't work because... LinkedIn does what it does very well, and Facebook couldn't couldn't really do that. And you know, when when Facebook was really taking off, Google had to have Google Plus, which never really took off either. But they all spin out these these products that are supposed to not just like compete with each other, but they, they express them as this is a X killer. You know, we're going to do in uh, this this vital aspect of somebody else's business and. Uh, I think that you know that that language actually is is pretty revelatory about how they how they view themselves they'd all like to be the hegemon that that governs everything and uh I don't know you know I don't know how we get away from them. There's there's some people who you know, well, don't use Google, use DuckDuckGo. Don't use any Apple products. Don't use Microsoft. But it it, it becomes so difficult. I mean, look, look look right now, we're on Skype, right? So Microsoft has access to everything that we're we're doing. Uh, what else would we use? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, we, I don't I don't know if Zoom is owned by anybody else at this time. But as soon as somebody like, as soon as some company becomes successful, it, it gets bought out by one of the, the larger companies. So, Instagram becomes big, it's bought out by Facebook. Um,
0: yeah, you, I love uh, WhatsApp, now WhatsApp's owned by Facebook.
1: Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. So. Um, that's huge in the third world, you know. Um, yeah, YouTube, you know, Google bought them, tried to force everybody on YouTube to, to have a Google Plus profile, that backfired, but they, they're still, you know, still part of the Google, Google-verse, Um, so, yeah, that's impossible to get away
0: from. That reminds me, so, on your YouTube, um, you did this thing, I'm going to join your Patreon, by the way, and, uh, yeah, I love it, and you did this video, for your monthly video, where you talk to all your patrons and let them ask you questions.
1: Oh, the Ask Me Anything sessions, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It was really great.
1: Yeah, the, the one thing that I don't like about that is that I often get like the same questions, and it, it would be nice if I could like if I had like previous times that I'd answered and I could like push a button and it would come up. Right, that would be cool interface technology. Because everyone keeps asking me about Jordan Peterson and Zizek and uh, who else, Nick Land. Um, there's a few others that that will. Almost every session will come up, but usually I I get some some, some good questions about like how to do philosophy and um, you know what I think about this event or that event. Um, so that's yeah. You know, and they're fun. Um, they get pretty long.
0: You like doing it live, so they're asking you questions live while you're while you're.
1: Yeah, there's like a chat thing on the side mm-hmm. that. You you can see coming up. Now, sometimes I may have to get a moderator because sometimes the people get into fights with each other. They start writing nasty things back and forth to each other. And I, I I'm I could see it if I scroll down, but I'm busy answering a question, right? So I'm not like looking down at the time and then I'll find out that people have been swearing at each other and you know, calling each other all sorts of names. Um or the, or one person just keeps asking the same question over and over again because they think I'm not, not getting to their question quick enough. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's yeah it's a fun feature. Um, I do I do other um, things that I call philosophy pop ups every once in a while where I'll pick a topic and I'll say okay I'm going to talk about this for an hour. Um, go ahead and ask your questions. Um, same sort of format. That's great. And that that works out pretty good.
0: What kinds yeah, of topics? It's,
1: oh, I've done all sorts of things. Um, like sometimes I'll, I'll at the beginning of the semester I'll say, "Here's the classes I'm teaching. Do you have any questions about them?" Um, if there's something going on, you know, like Valentine's Day, maybe I'll do do one about love and relationships, or, um, you know. Fourth uh, of July, I'll talk about patriotism and, and nationalism, or, or you know, things along those lines. Things that are kind of topical. And sometimes I've tied it in with um, somebody who I'm doing a lot of work on at the time, you know, or, or doing a seminar on. Um, I think actually after Stoicon, I, I did something about, but for a couple of the times where I did presentations, I think I did pop-ups afterwards, where I said, okay, you couldn't make it to Stoicon, um, here's what I talked about, um, what, what questions do you have? So I, And I think in some cases, I, I even like had a video that I said you could watch this video beforehand and then we'll talk about that. But it's kind of you know, it's kind of all over the map. Um,
0: yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say that when it comes to using all these platforms and uh, technologies, I have not been a, a really uh, thorough planner. <laughs> you know? I just sort of like moved into things and tried them out, and and uh, I, I've done exactly the opposite of what all these entrepreneur, you know, websites and coaching packages tell you you're supposed to do, which is to, like have a you know master plan and stick to
0: it and all that. Yeah, you just do what works. and Make it up as yeah. you go along. I don't know. That's what I do. <laughs> It worked. Yeah. Go where your desire leads you. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I, the planning stuff seems by itself to take a lot of time.
0: So. Yeah, and it, that's just a way to set yourself up for disaster, I feel. I feel like people make plans that like, sub, subvert their, themselves, you know, and then feel guilty about the fact that they didn't stick to their plan and they can sit in their guilt. It's like a way to enjoy a symptom. Oh, yeah, 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 true. Much better to just go off the cuff, I think. Mm. Yeah. And also, it makes, like you said, that with school, too, like not having a plan going into it. I think, you know, I've had a lot of people, (laughs) like clients, like therapy clients, talk about, you know, oh, I had this plan to do this or go to university and it didn't work out. A lot of people's jobs aren't there. The jobs aren't there when they're getting out of school and things like that. but. I'm trying to help everyone see it in a different way. Like, you know, but you have a unique skill set because you've gone from here to here to here to here. And then that ends up giving you these qualities that people that did take this kind of traditional straight and narrow track don't have. And you end up being more of like a creative thinker and, you know, thinking outside the box and inventing new ways of being in the world.
1: Yeah, that is a big issue for um, the current generation of, of people who are like, going to graduate school and and training um, because the the um, the perception in the past was, well, if you're doing something other than going into a tenure-track job, you fail. You've, you've sold out. You've, you've uh, done something bad. <clears throat> you've wasted your, your studies. You've you know, let the discipline down. Um, there's a lot of them who don't realize that they have incredibly marketable skills. And... Um, that, you know, a lot. So the, the, there exist now services and organizations to help people make those transitions, to be able to see that you know, like, so if you can write a dissertation, well, you can do you can do research, you know, um, and you can also articulate arguments and you can also analyze reports and you know, there's all these other things that you can do well. But but they're you know, the graduate students oftentimes just don't don't get that because their professors aren't telling them that their professors want them to try to get the tenure-track jobs, so they they have an incentive in, in not preparing them for anything outside of um, the academic life. And, and then most of them end up in the vast pool of non-tenure-track jobs, either doing, you know, one- to two-year appointments, whether it's a postdoc or a teaching thing, or, you know, just, just a part, you know, uh, Full time, but but only a year contract thing, or they wind up trying to do the adjunct thing, which is a pretty miserable way to live if that's if that's your main way of, of earning money, because you get zero benefits unless you're in a really great system. Um, doesn't pay very well. The the full timers look down on you, and and you know sometimes steal your classes or things like that. So yeah, it's a rough time. Um, but uh, yeah, these these these. Students could be preparing themselves to be shifting into other other avenues and exactly. doing quite well
0: exactly. It's just a time of having to invent new way, new ways of being in the world, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we talk about reason i o
1: Oh yeah, my company yeah. Uh, yeah, so I started it originally to uh, be able to, to deduct things on my taxes. <laughs> I think a way a lot of people <clears throat> start companies. I was doing public speaking and a few other things, and having having a, a, a business means that you can then deduct certain expenses, right? So th- that's that's why we founded it in the first place, and then it just kind of grew into other other things. So now I, I use it as my umbrella for um, the tutorial services that I offer, the philosophical counseling, um, the ethics consulting, and um, I mean officially, I think my con- my like YouTube content production is under that as well. Um, and so, you know, people ask, well, what do, you know? What is Reasonable? It's basically me, you know. Uh, just, just uh, as a commodity, <laughs> rather than you know, the speaking stuff goes goes through that. Um, and so, you know, I created a website, which is which is in bad need of updating. Uh, but the the cool thing is, um, even putting in the minimal effort in like website design and and all that, I've been fortunate in that I've I've never been without clients and. Um, I don't do any of the marketing stuff that you're supposed to do. <laughs> I always have a continual stream of people coming in and, and contacting me. So something's working at least. Um, What's I really,
0: philosophical counseling like? Well,
1: you know, a lot of it's very dialogical, right? People, people approach you with, um, a lot of times it's job transition things. Uh, or relationship issues. Um, I do a lot of work on anger management as well because that's kind of a, a, a interest and, and specialty of mine using philosophical resources. And it's, um, so it's an interesting movement. In, in Europe it's called philosophical practice rather than philosophical counseling. And they deliberately decided not to um, align it with a medical model. Because that way they, they don't have to take insurance and bother with all of that sort of stuff and then they don't have to have the same sort of licensing, right, mm-hmm. that, that medical professionals do. Like, like you, you do as a, a, a psychoanalyst, right? Um, so essentially what you're doing is you're using resources from philosophy, and they could be all sorts of things, to help people understand and, and resolve life problems whether it's you know career relationships um, issues of you know existential crises of, of meaning in their life like they're going through a midlife crisis or something like that and, uh, and some, some things too like facilitating discussions in the workplace about anger um, all of those things fall within its scope and so there's there's a big overlap between uh, philosophical counseling and and Life coaching, on the one side, and then there's an overlap between what we do and what people in psychotherapy do. Um, and there's two main organizations in the United States. The the one that I am certified with is more more eclectic and more humanistically focused. The American Philosophical Practitioners Association. The other one is is much more into the CBT and and uh, um, uh, critical thinking, you know, viewing viewing essentially the, the way to figure out your life is like straightening out your reasoning processes. So they're a bit more narrow in focus, I think. Um, and there's, you know, um, like like many things, New York is the place where you gotta go to get certified. Right. So both of the main organizations have their their headquarters in New York. But then there's people all over the place doing it. And and I like it because I was the the main reason I, I did it in the first place is I was already engaged in those sorts of practices with people and I wasn't getting paid for it. So I, I was using, you know, resources from say Aristotle to help out friends and colleagues and sometimes family members to, you know, understand why they respond the way that they do. So so at a certain point, my wife and I were like, "Well, <clears throat> you should at least go get certified because then you can, you can charge for it and, and do it in uh, other settings." And I, you know, I, I enjoy it. If if I if I stopped teaching altogether and I stopped speaking and YouTube production, um, I'd probably split my time between that and, and writing uh, because it's it's rewarding. I mean, you know how it is working with clients, right? You you can't force progress, and some of the time you'll come away from a session and be like, "Well, it's 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 too bad that they, you know, here's here's some places they could have chosen something different, uh, but maybe next session, <laughs> right? Uh, or maybe they'll maybe they'll think about some stuff. But you know, when you when you see people um, making the connections. And being able to use texts and thinkers from philosophy to improve their lives—that's that's very rewarding. Because um, that's you know that's what a lot of ancient medieval philosophy was about. It wasn't it wasn't you know purely academic discipline. It was about like as as I, can I swear on this? Uh, so you know a friend of mine and I have always wanted to write a book together called How to Unfuck Your Life, and that's essentially what we're what we're doing right. We're, we're, we're taking um, our fucked up lives and trying to make them a little bit less so using whatever resources we can. And that's what they were doing in ancient philosophy. You know, Aristotle wasn't writing the Nicomachean Ethics just to provide some sort of like set of guidelines for the perfect life for the perfect person or anything like that. It's more like, well, your life is a mess. Here's some stuff that can make it. You're probably not gonna reach this point over here. But at least you don't have to be miserable. <laughs> you know? So the same thing with the Stoics and you know, early, early Christian writers who are who are, you know more philosophically inclined and and Neoplatonists. They're all they're all interested in in you know, having us have better relationships and be less of a hot mess and you know be less filled with contradictions.
0: Trying to improve so, themselves in society. It's like applied yeah. philosophy. It's not just an yeah. intellectual exercise for the elite.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. The uh, the chair of one of the local colleges, um, when he found out that I was doing that, because we were at a conference together locally, he was like, oh, you're one of them. You're not a real philosopher. And I was like, I, get the, I, I didn't say this to Get the hell out of here, you know. Uh, what, 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 what? How? Who, whose lives have you helped in any way, you know? Um, how are you? How are you remotely like Plato or Aristotle or the Stoics or Cicero, you know? Um, but there's that. There's that conception that, like, well, if you're applying philosophy, you're doing something that's lower, you know. You're doing something that's that's dirtying your hands or
0: you know? it's bullshit. <laughs> I
1: know, yeah, it's, it's too bad because I think there's a relation between um, the, the actual like thinkers and texts and understanding what they're talking about and, and doing practice. Um, if you don't have the practice, you can't fully illuminate what the texts are talking about. So doing scholarship just for its own sake is kind of a dead end in, in, in terms of development. You know, and we can say the same thing about Freud, right? There's some people who are like specialists and, you know, you ask them, you know, where did Freud talk about that? And they've got it like right at the top of their mind, but you wouldn't trust them with a client, you know, because they'd have no idea what to do with them.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and they've never been through psychoanalysis. I think that's the most important way to learn is to see how it's applied in your own life.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that's kind of cool about the psychoanalytic paradigm is that you don't get to practice without having gone through analysis yourself. And then, you know, typically you also, like, get to observe some other things along the way. So they don't just, like, give you the the guidebook and then say, go out there and work. <laughs> Which seems... Like it would be a
0: disaster, you know? Yeah, well, in psychology, a, they do that now. When I went for my psychology yeah. side, I thought that we would have to undergo therapy to become a psychologist because I had that psychoanalytic yeah, yeah. thing in mind, and then we didn't We didn't have to. It wasn't required, and I was like, well, that, that doesn't seem right. You <laughs> can't have well, people especially, being especially psychologists in... that have never fixed their own things you know
1: well and especially given that so many people as undergraduates are attracted to studying psychology because they think that well i'm kind of screwed up i want to understand why i'm screwed up right so if they don't go through therapy yeah
0: oh you know to go I'll, through I'll, therapy.
1: This, is, this is total a total digression but um i got into an interesting discussion on twitter uh, a while back and it was um it was somebody asking about what you know what makes for a good therapist? And I wrote it, and I said it's really hard to find a good therapist. <clears throat> not just because you know there's there's a natural sort of variance. Some people, in whatever job, they really suck and they are not suited for it, but they're going to stick with it anyway. And some people are brilliant. And then there's kind of a, a bell curve of people in the middle. But if you're a, a philosopher and you know some some uh, psychological theory it's really tough to find a good psychotherapist because if they're like doing CBT and you understand the way CBT works you know what they're going to say before they say it and some of them really don't like that they get they get really bothered by by you like knowing their their skill set and then i'd always get accused of intellectualizing <laughs> so you know I'd, I'd be with some guy who had like just an MA in counseling or something like that and I'd be talking to him about something. I'd be saying, well, here's how I'm thinking about this. And, and you know, I kind of think Aristotle's right about that. His, mm-hmm. his, like, alarm bells would go off immediately, and he'd accuse me of, like, deflecting, intellectualizing, all all these sort of buzzwords, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, for some people that would probably be the case. But for me, no, that's integral to the way I approach things. I'm doing philosophy because, you know, it, it's it's part of who I am. So Aristotle. Model or, or Epictetus, they're like conversation partners with me, and kind of help me to figure out my, my own bullshit. So if they can't be part of the conversation because that person, you know, that the the, the it's almost like it's almost like the reverse of transference, right? With you know the work, big worry is well I'm going to like fall in love with my my therapist or I'm going to hate them because of this you gotta, you got to watch what the therapist is, is bringing to the situation as well as, a, so, as somebody who's committed to, to um, integrating academic topics with, with practical living. So it's really hard for me to find a, a good um, therapist. I had a guy here in Milwaukee who I was really happy with and I was working with. And then, as you know, he, he was really good at what he did, so of course he got kicked upstairs and he, now he, he like you know he's a supervisor um, handling uh, training and stuff like that. So he doesn't he doesn't meet for private sessions anymore. That's that's the way it always is, right? Really? The, the really good people they get taken out of circulation. <laughs>
0: so, yeah. No, it is so, hard it's... to find a, somebody. It's hard to find a good fit. And you actually talked about that a bit on. Um on that ask me anything yeah somebody asked you about uh, I guess they said you talked about uh, kind of mental health care and they asked you about that Um, but it is hard to find a good fit and I think that's another thing that technology is using too of course there's arguments about seeing someone in person or technology but I found more and more people are finding people online that they can talk to over whatsapp or skype or something like that
1: yeah what do you so I, I like that you can, like, see people. Um, I don't feel that it's that much of a loss to, like, not be in the same room. Um, I think it'd be harder, like, over the phone. If, if you don't have the visual, you, you think that's, that's really important to the, the therapeutic
0: context? Or Yeah, I mean, so, like, some psychoanalysts that pe- have people using the couch, uh, they would Probably want not. it to be filmed because they don't want true, you looking true. for their like reactions. <laughs> but what I've found is that you know because most of my clients are are in New York or the states. Some of them okay. had already moved to like the West Coast when I lived in New York, so I was already seeing them uh, remotely. And now that yeah. I've moved, you know, I referred most people to people I knew in New York. But some people were like, like I'm not talking to anyone else. <laughs> like forget it. You know, yeah. you have to stay with me. So, so I have like a handful of people that I've kind of stayed with since the move. Um, and I was more worried about it before I left. I was really stressed that it wasn't going to work well for them. But it's been totally fine. I mean, it's been totally fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't tried uh, meeting with somebody remotely. Because, you know, here, here in the States, insurance is the biggest issue, right? Um, and we're on <clears throat> we're on the uh, ACA marketplace stuff, which kind of ties you to to your state. Yeah, um, it's too bad that, that that we have the weird patchwork, messed up system that we do for for healthcare in general, and also for for mental health, because it's just you know. So I mean, you know, for, I'm sure from talking with people over there, it's just so foreign to almost anybody else in, in the developed countries that you, you why wouldn't you have a, a national healthcare system where people can get what they need and it doesn't cost them an arm and a leg. You know? um, although it looks like the Brits may lose theirs eventually, um, which which is kind of a, a shame. I uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Especially for the, you know, the human toll that it takes. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this like, Div- uh, not dividends, uh, uh, what do we call it? The thing you gotta pay in first, you gotta reach the certain ceiling, starts with a D, um, deductibles. Oh, I wouldn't man. wish this crazy deductibles, co-pays uh,
0: business on anybody. Yeah, you know? deductibles are like $6,000 mm. now. Right, that's my, my last insurance. I was like, when am I, I mean, unless I have like a major accident, when am I gonna spend $6,000? And yeah, that's on no. top of what I pay for months, so it's like forget it. Yeah. Uh, I want to make sure that is there anything else you want to talk about that we get to? Um,
1: no, I mean nothing else like that's absolutely top of mind. I'm at the beginning of this semester, <clears throat> so you know I, I got to meet with my uh, one of my face to face classes yesterday. That was a lot of fun. Um, I have this Intro to Humanities class that I teach at Milwaukee, Institute of Art and Design. And one of the things I do like about teaching is um, interacting with, with young people who are anywhere from like 18 to 24, college age. Um, there's something that's kind of good about that. Um I'm not a, quite sure what it is.
0: It's such but, a great age. It's such a transitional time where they're really like yeah. stepping into their kind of adulthood and what, what they're gonna do with themselves, you know. I feel like it's really helpful for them to have mentors or people to talk to or people that are showing them different options of ways of being, you know.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess it's I mean it's it's kind of good on, on my end too to, to like stay in touch with with that and so I don't become one of those old people because you know I'm almost 50 years old now who, who like doesn't understand the younger generation and uh, I mean I don't, I don't claim to like use their language or anything like that um, and I don't like create philosophy memes but um, it's I mean it's, they it's will, cool. They
0: will cre- create your philosophy memes for you. Yeah it's, it's
1: cool <laughs> to like see what they're going through and, and find out um, where my Assumptions are right where they're wrong and then revise them, you know, so Yeah, although my 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 oldest daughter is going to be going to college next year So I'm sure I'll get more of that, you know interacting with her as well
0: (laughs) And you mentioned writing are you writing anything right now? Yeah,
1: I'm supposed to be this is supposed to be the year that I finally get some of the book projects done and I've, I've got a collaborator that I'll probably be working on a book on Stoicism and Anger with. Um, I'm also supposed to be working on an edited volume for Stoicism today, which isn't, isn't really me writing, it's just editing, um, but it's bringing together stuff that's, that's been in the blog. And then I've got a number of um, writing projects that I've wanted to do things on for a while. It's a matter of finding the time. That's the tricky part. Um, one that I've been wanting to, to do work on for quite a while, and I may make that a priority for this year, is a, a book essentially about ethics, but it's it's how to make um, end-of-life decisions about your pets for pet owners. Because when we had to put our, our cat down, who had, was having liver failure and, and you know was was uh, having a very rough time. This is back in Kingston. Um, it was it was uh, it was hard for me. It was much harder for my, my wife. And I I started asking some of the vet people. Do you get any um, guidance on how to? help people make these sorts of decisions that they have to make about. Because there's all sorts of factors that go into it. You don't want the pet to suffer. You also feel like, well, they're kind of your baby, so you don't want to like just say, well, uh, you know, no longer functional, cut them off. You know, but you need spend a lot of money, too. And then you feel guilty if you don't spend the money, but sometimes it's better if you don't. And so, Um, The vets don't get much guidance about this, and the um, other people working in in vet places don't either. Some people are good at helping people make these decisions, and most people haven't thought about these decisions before they they come up. So I thought, you know, putting together a book that would would actually help guide people and not not like not like having the Sadler system for ethical decisions or anything like that, right? But giving them some 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 broad um, points to think about and criteria to use, I think that could actually be a really helpful book. So I, I do want to write that sooner than later. Um, we also had to put a, a, another pet down last year, so we went through a, a similar thing, and and. Uh, Again, it was very hard, and, and I think there's there's a, a need for those sorts of resources. Um, so that's that's one project, but you know I've got I've got other things. I, I want to do more online writing. Oh, I'll tell you one thing that's got to go into that that pet book though. It's called the, I call it the paradox of care, um, and this also applies to people, but in a different way. Um, one reason why you have to do these these tough end-of-life decisions is because we treat animals as um, more more like persons than people did in the past. So we ensure that they get good diet, good exercise, good medical care, checkups, all those sorts of things. We, we have created a, a good environment for them. And so cats, you know, by the time that cats get to be about 12 years old, their organs are from what the vets tell us, ready to fail. Anything can go at any moment. They're kind of on of our own time, because their, their bodies aren't really designed to, to live super long, and some, some do live quite long, but um, by extending their life through the really great care that we give them, we allow other things to happen, like cancers, you know, mm-hmm. or um, like with dogs. <clears throat> so our, our dog that we still have, She's able to get around, but she's lost most of the muscles in her, her hips and back legs, because that's what happens to generation over time. Even if she's active and getting all the supplements and best food and all that, it still is going to happen. If she had died when she was 12, um, it really wouldn't have been that much of an issue. But you're faced with new medical situations precisely because of the great care that you've provided. So the reward for giving great care is now you have to make these really tough decisions about other things that they're gonna suffer from. And, and you can say something similar for you know human beings as well, right, mm-hmm. the, the fact that we now have uh, life expectancy into the 70s means that we can die of other stuff that wasn't an issue when people were dying much younger. Um, But when it comes to human beings, human beings can speak for themselves. When it comes to animals, we have to make the decisions for them. And so that places a greater ethical uh, weight upon us. And um, that's, that's one of the things I want to write about.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk with Dr. Greg Sadler. For more, please visit his website, reasonio.com. He also has a YouTube channel, SoundCloud, Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, forward slash Sadler, s-a-d-l-e-r. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreoncom ncom forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a-2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Waiting
2: waiting when waiting. i into number nine into number nine of the or the less entire. less entire typewriter mimic, typewriter disaster. mimic disaster. disaster opening chapter, opening chapter. The writing machine, like those of a like those do, it do it yourself. Fear of restrooms is to life. Head slightly. He is in the past. The senses was the tear vile. The perception us the painter's technique in his powers. Swinging powers. back society to close with Satan save. glued save. into your I dare you, into me. I know you joint, know efforts, joint efforts. Pray. Originally, ground almost backwards on my idea of, of regression. Of brainstorming in his powers, might be might Europe be in North America. that may. allowed for contact we between may. May. defining data as its resistance to definition. New dimension might be. We may. Gambling scenes. But it is new dimension. Gambling scenes. Light my fire. Unconsciously. After all, forces, after all one has discussed just smart, sickly thing to mend. Resting, the tact, resting, waiting, the grand highway once thus bringing his work. work Data is allowed for opening chapter. Constant internal observations had, had, slightly weighting had slightly provided and their provided intersection new forms The particles relationships in nineteen thirteen to sound despite that led sight and then he would turn his the daughter the data is allowed for organism in dreams I talk with you sexuality in your dreams last physical level we into constant internal, with all the tentacles, observations, the people who, particles, particles, the daughter, tentacles, movement is, itself, kinesthetic, of the, got mine. into number nine, light my fire, typewriter mimic, swinging back, sickly thin, in the past was the tear vial, to mend, the painter's technique is the cut. Opening the chapter, chapter. Opening unconsciously. unconsciously, organism unconsciously. from the every level, In every level. inherit, business inherit. of life, sexuality, of life. and computed dust. When I, into number yeah. nine of the specializes or less the entire, the nature, nature of words, disaster, has discussed, has Cut up's forces. Safe is the cut. I dare you. Sickly thin I know you. Against a rock. Clarifies their formal. Fade out. Debate as to the exact. Now is blessed. Backwards on my he idea would, of regression. He would turn his. Would turn in his powers. In dreams. Pray. I talk with you. Almost. In your dreams last. Into me. The into, the into joint efforts, joint efforts. And, then, and then new dimension. New dimension. Despite Vanessa, despite, but uh, there is uh, there is. Uh,